0: Good morning. My name is Dan. It's a pleasure to open God's Word with you. I'm a leader here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, Peter was actually scheduled today to preach, uh, continue through the series of Mark. Uh, but he's fallen ill and he said, Dan, you can preach on anything. <laughs> actually, that's usually bad news for me because I'm like, there's so many options. What, you know, anything. Anything. So as I considered, I I noticed that as we've looked through Mark, we've seen a lot of shepherd imagery, haven't we? We've seen feeding, you know, all that. We've seen, you know, Jesus looks at his people as sheep without a shepherd. And uh, we can sum all of it up like this. Jesus' people are clearly seen as totally needy, like sheep. And Jesus is the shepherd they need. That's Mark so far. So I'd like to take this week and I want to look at the most famous shepherd chapter in all the Bible, Psalm 23. It's on page 293 of your church Bibles. This can also be found on mugs and inspirational calendars. <laughs> and it's typically associated with pretty happy thoughts, right? Um, but, but it's actually a hard chapter if you're, if you're a proud person. Very hard chapter if you're a proud person. But there's hope even in that because Jesus is the point of it, which is why you can preach on anything in the Bible and get to Jesus. He's in there. So he's in here. He's not limited to the four gospel accounts. And his the and second reason is his shepherding over your life is the best possible place you can hope to be in. It's the best place. So let's deconstruct Psalm 23 and see our Lord and Savior at work. So you may have looked at the title and said, the Lord is your shepherd. You say, that's not on my coffee mug. It says the Lord is my shepherd. I want to look at the you. I want to focus more specifically as you as a person and what the Lord is doing for you. So let's read Psalm 23 together. Most of you could almost recite this, couldn't you? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. this is a chapter that it can be easy to tune out on as we read it, because we miss the huge things that are going on. It's something like, like preaching in general, like reading the, the Bible, that the danger is that we become numb to it, not because it's dead, but because we are. But would you help us to read it with new eyes? Amen. Okay, we're just gonna go verse by verse and talk about what the Lord's doing. So we're talking about the Lord is your shepherd, section one. First section, in bright days. So the Lord is your shepherd in bright days. First three verses. The Lord is your shepherd. In other words, he is set over you. You are in his care. So if he's your shepherd, what does that make you? Does that make you? There you go. <laughs> it's like, was that one of the kids? Oh, thanks, Aaron. <laughs> right. Now, are sheep easy to care for? Anybody ever cared for a sheep? Another sheep. Yes. You, Be- Becca, why are sheep hard to care for? They're stupid. What else? Anything else? Okay, stupid. You can go with that. You can preach 30 minutes on stupid. Okay, remember a month ago when I gave the illustration about all the sheep following each other off the cliff? Well, they did if you weren't here. And uh, the reason why is because sheep need shepherds. Why? Because they're dead otherwise. So the Lord is your shepherd. It's a necessary thing. Verse 2, he makes you lie down in green pastures. He makes you lie down in green pastures. Who likes green pastures? Who would like to lie down in a nice, warm, sunny green pasture right about now? I would. So let me ask you, why does the text say he makes me lie down in green pastures? He makes me. Have you ever made somebody lie down? Perhaps a puppy or a small child or an overcommitting spouse. The Lord makes us lay down when we don't want to. In other words, he wants our good more than we do. He makes us lie down in green pastures. In other words, there's good things out there, and we don't know it. And the Lord has to say, sit down. This is good. We're still in verse 2. He leads you beside still waters. He gives you what you need. You need things like water. Now, I'm going to go beyond that for the sake of the fact that this is poetry, and I think it is very much illustrative of the entire human condition. So as we dig into this verse and we dig into the next two, I want you to consider all the good things that the Lord has given to you in your life. Just take a moment, think about them. Consider your life. It's the fact that you have it. Your life. Not everyone can say that. Consider your spouse if you have one of those. Consider your children if you have those. Consider a job if you have one of those. Consider a place to live. I believe everyone here has one of those. Consider a church family. Everyone has one of those. Any of those and many, many, many more good gifts are just that. They're gifts from the Lord. He leads you beside. He takes you to. He brings you to things that are essentially very good. He loves you. In other words, there's not just the good things he makes you see like making you sit down at green pastures, there are these good things all around us from him that we can clearly perceive. That's all throughout the New Testament. The Lord has given us um, the mindset that we can actually perceive very good things. And even beyond that, we're in verse 3, he restores your soul. Now this is extra credit shepherd work. He restores your soul. As one preacher said, who who does that if they're not into you? Who restores your soul if they're not into you? And I say that because to this point, you can actually be reading this chapter so far and you can firmly and wrongly believe that Jesus exists for the sole purpose of making you happy. I mean, still in verse 3, he leads you in paths of righteousness. But why does he do and give all of the things that I just said. Why does He do that? Look in verse 3. For His name's sake. For His name's sake. In other words, He does all these good things so that He gets glory and not you. It's for His glory. Let me walk through it. He gives you rest for His glory. He gives you life for His glory. If He gives you a spouse it's for his glory. And if he doesn't, that's also for his glory. If he gives you children, for his glory. If he gives you a job, for his glory. Repetition. If he gives you a place to live, for his glory. He gives you a church family, for his glory. All of those things are for his name's sake, so that he can become more famous. And so, what's your only job in these three verses? God, look at the three verses. What's the one thing you're supposed to do? Anybody see it? It's back in verse 1. I shall not want. That's your job, is to not want. Now, does that mean any of those gifts that I just said are bad? Of course not. This command is referring to a state of wanting a preoccupation with entitlement. In other words, what I just said, reading the verse, reading the chapter, reading the words of God wrongly and thinking, the Lord gives me things because I am awesome. The belief that any of these good gifts are actually not gifts, but rather things that you earn. Sheep don't get a paycheck, do they? They don't. They get life, that's plenty. They don't get a paycheck. That's why the Lord is your shepherd, your sheep. It's in your DNA to run off the cliff. That's how you roll. And if you think I'm exaggerating, tell me if you've ever mishandled any of those gifts I just said. Or tell me if you've ever gotten angry with God for not giving them to you or taking them away. All of those are symptoms of want. And want Fundamentally, looks at the shepherd and says, you are a bad shepherd. I'll do it myself. And then cliff. See, sin is so deceptive, it can actually cause you to believe that Jesus is bad. Isn't that striking? You can actually think that the source of good is not good. But remember how much more he wants good for us than we do. He makes us lie down in things that are objectively good. And so, the, and so your hope during bright days is actually this: it's not to grip tightly or envy any of those gifts. It's to remember that the Lord is your shepherd. That's how you shall not want, is to remember that the Lord is your shepherd, not that you deserve any of those things. Here's a recent example of this: I was at a conference all week. It was great, and the food was amazing, and you could just you could just keep going. Nobody capped you. All my friends were there. I got to do video recording and editing. Some of you are losing me at this point. It's great. I played basketball. I played volleyball. I learned about Jesus. I played board games and I got to sleep. It was crazy. For like several nights in a row, I actually got to do that and it was mostly quiet. Now, in hindsight, do you know what my favorite time of the conference was? It's actually none of those things. It was when I was on the phone with my wife Becky one night, and she graciously but firmly pointed out a sin in my life. That was the best night of the conference for me. Now, you might be thinking, Dan, you took a few too many rods to the head for thinking that. Who takes that over unlimited food? (laughs) Here's the thing. Does good food last no matter how good it is? Nope. What about people? Do they ever move away or die? Sure. What about games? Do they end? Yup. What about sleep? Does that last forever? No. Does not. But Jesus is not like those things. Jesus doesn't die. His word is good. All those things will fail me. Jesus won't die. They actually tried to kill him once. That didn't work out. And here's the thing. He will never fail me like I did my wife. He will never fail me like I failed my wife. And so, he is not just a shepherd. He's a good shepherd. That's the whole point of these three verses. He's my treasure, even if I'm given a room full of very nice things. Same for you. So what about the reverse? What about dark nights? Section two. The Lord is your shepherd in dark nights. Let's just look at verse four. He is with you. Do you ever struggle in hard times to believe that Jesus is present? You just think he's completely absent. It's just you punching your way in the dark. Why is that true? I would say it's true because you don't know what's going on. You're actually not sure what's going to happen next, right? When things are kind of unknown, when things are hard, you're not sure. How's this appointment going to work out? That phone call, how's that going to go? Tomorrow, am I going to have my job tomorrow? The unknown. Things you don't know. It's dark. Does Jesus know? Sure. Is he going to tell you? Probably not. Probably not those things. But he's with you, so why then is it still hard? Right? If Jesus is with you, why is the temptation still to be afraid? Here's an example that might help you flesh out why, this is, why these two things can coexist. My daughter Rosie is afraid of the dark. At one point a few months ago, she started waking us up at four or five in the morning, every night, crying. Every night. This kind of gets old pretty fast. Out of nowhere, and I would ask her, what's wrong? And she would say, I heard a noise. I didn't hear one, I just heard a baby crying. <laughs> well, about a week ago, my wife figured it out. She actually figured out what the noise was. She caught the noise. It was the door in our basement closing because our downstairs neighbor sometimes works third shift. And the opening and closing was him coming home and that was waking her up. And so we told Rosie, oh, Rosie, it's cool. That noise, that's actually Mr. Vitali, and he's coming home from work. You don't have to be afraid so when you hear it, You can actually, instead of being afraid and crying, you can thank Jesus at Mr. Vitale's home, and you can pray for him and say, help him to sleep well, love his wife, and you can go back to sleep because it's cool. That's so sweet. Did that work? No. (laughs) Nope. Nope, she still wakes us up a bunch of times. Not every night. It's getting better, but she still wakes us up sometimes. I heard a noise. Did we not tell you what the noise was? Why does she still wake us up? Because the darkness is hard to disbelieve, isn't it? Here's the thing. She does not need more information. She needs to feel protected. She wants us to be with her. That's it. The information does not solve the problem. If you know you're going to die, does that make you feel better? No. Now, it's going to be a long time before Rosie trusts us enough to actually believe us and then in turn pray to Jesus instead of just automatically getting up and screaming. But guess what? She's actually got some practice already. Because some nights she's actually cried out and we're so tired from the other nights that we sleep right through it. And we actually discover her the next morning outside our door, heap of blankets, pillow, asleep. You know, it's because even if we want to, we can't always be there for her. But Jesus can. That's the promise that he makes to you in darkness. I'm there. So you can trust that even if you don't have all the information or the friends fail you. Because Jesus has it all and he's not leaving. Okay, let's actually step it up a little and let's talk about some earned darkness. Because sometimes it's scary because it's just scary. And sometimes it's scary because you made it that way. Still in verse 4, his rod and staff comfort you. And the rod and the staff referring to correction. What do shepherds use his staff for? Hook. Get over it. What about a rod? (laughs) It's actually the sound it makes. How are all those comforting? How is it possible for that to be comforting? Well, you have to consider the actual scenario that the, that the person is in, or in this case, the sheep is in. You have to consider the valley of the shadow of death. Imagine you're in a place where death is all around you. Imagine that, just for a second. Now, imagine a very narrow path that gets out of that valley. Imagine that there's a way out, but it's very narrow, and there's death all around. 99% death, 1% good way out. Now imagine a staff or a rod that keeps you on that narrow path going out of that valley. Pain doesn't sound so bad now, does it? Is pain better than death? I'll take that. When we think the pain is not worth it, it's because we don't think we're dying. Especially when you consider the sheep factor. I mean, think about the sheep. Sheep says, hey, something shiny. I think I'm going to head over that cliff. Whack. That whack is good news. Here's a real-life example. Remember on the phone where my wife pointed out my sin? Remember that story? What if she wouldn't have done that? Because I know a lot of people say, man, I wish that conversation wouldn't have happened. Wish my boss wouldn't have called me in his office. Right? Right? What if she wouldn't have done that? Now, would the immediate sting of being called out have been taken away from me? Yeah, because i tell say, "Well, when I hang up that phone, I was not feeling good." Fundamentally, like immediately, it took a couple of days where I was like, "That was that's pretty cool." But if that conversation what wouldn't have happened? What would have been the long term result? Just keep doing that, dead marriage, dead marriage. Now, that might sound bad, and it is, but you know It's actually a lot worse than that? Dead marriage is just the beginning. Because if you view happy and rebuke free living as ideal, you're going to start avoiding criticism at every cost, and you will never give it to people. And the worst part is, is you're going to think you're doing the Lord's work. You will think you're being gracious, but you're really just lowering the bar all the way to the floor, probably through the floor. And when you die, if you live like that, you're going to stand before Jesus and say, Lord, look at how happy everybody is in my family. Lord, look at how much everyone likes me. And the Lord will turn to you and say, I'm sorry, do I know you? Friends, don't hate correction. Don't do it. When the Lord brings your sin to the light, it's a sweet thing. Not because it's easy, but because he's good, and we can rejoice in that. We're going to practice some of that a little bit later in application. Let's keep going. Verse 5, he prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Now we've got an actual deadly scenario, and yet a table is being set. This is kind of a strange, very poetic verse. But again, I want you to consider the scenario, death all around. But yet, Jesus prepares a feast where it seems that death is sure to win. You've got enemies all around, and Jesus is over here setting a table. So what's the table he's preparing? What's the feast? We're actually going to get to that in just a minute. Hang with me. Still in verse 5. He anoints your head with oil and your cup runs over. We're at the table, the enemies are all around, and now oil is being poured. This is strange, strange imagery it would seem. Why is oil being poured? Why do people anoint? Well, I can think of three reasons. The one reason I used to anoint people was because they wanted to select a kid. Royalty. Uh, the other was for healing. And uh, the third one was a host welcoming his guests. Those are three ways typically in which that happens. Which one is this? Oh, I don't know. I don't think that really matters. Here's what we do know. If the Lord has oiled the poor and can make cups overflow and has a table to set, he's not worried. He's not lacking, and so neither are you, because he's your shepherd. I think all that's happening in verse 5 is this. The Lord prepares a feast in dark places because he is more powerful than the darkness. It might seem dark, but Jesus sees beyond what you see. He prepares a feast because the darkness does not concern him. And so in all this, as you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and as the Lord is good to you, what's your job? You guys see the, the one job in this one? I will what? It's in verses 4 through 6. Anybody see it? 4 through 5? It's way back in verse 4. Fear no evil. I will fear no evil. Because the Lord does. That's it. This is it. You're like a child in the dark, except your dad doesn't sleep. You don't need all the information. You just need to need Jesus. You need to need Jesus. That's all it looks like to be a successful sheep. The spouse, the kids, the house, the job, the health, the money, and all of that and more can be taken from you, and yet it is possible to rejoice in the shepherd because Jesus is your shepherd. And his aim is to save you from the worst of all, death. That's his goal as a shepherd. Remember when I said he's preparing a feast? But we don't know what that is, like what's being served. If you misinterpret this Psalm, and you hop, skip, and jump all the way through it, expecting the Lord to give you a new car, or a spouse, or happy, stress-free living, you're gonna call that stuff the feast, right? That's what the Lord gives, right? That's what makes Him good. But you're gonna starve. Friends, the feast is Jesus. He's serving you Himself. Here's why. He gave his life for you to be saved, sheep. That's what shepherds do. And this is exactly why Jesus was and is misunderstood by so many people. Do You know a lot of people out there who actually fundamentally misunderstand Jesus' words, even though they're like right there, seriously? Because the original audience, they had no respect for shepherds. But the closest analogy was a fast food worker. Except in fast food, he didn't get killed by a lion. David, the guy who wrote this, you know that he was a shepherd? In fact, he almost got passed over when a new king was being selected. You know why? Because people don't hire shepherds to be king. But guess what? God did. And so Jesus came In the same way as a shepherd, not for some political revolution or for stress-free living, not to give you a new car, but to give his life so that many sheep would be saved from all the flocks of the world. To give his life that you would be saved. And so, people missed him because they weren't looking for a shepherd. Friends, don't miss him. Don't miss Jesus. Jesus. Don't just trust Him as your Savior. Because a lot of people do that. They pray the prayer, they do the one-time thing, and then they're just kind of done, and life becomes a cosmic waiting room. Trust Him as your shepherd daily. Not to just guide you today, but tomorrow, because guess what? His promises actually aren't done yet. Let's do the last verse, verse 6, section 3. The Lord is your shepherd, not just in bright days and dark nights, but so that you can trust Him in the future. This is future-focused. Look at verse 6. Look at the promises. Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. Jesus promises a life of goodness and mercy. And again, don't read goodness as New Bentley, or spouse, or fancy job. Because he also said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's the life and goodness according to God. Sacrifice. It's the opposite of accumulating stuff. It's actually giving it away. It's the exact opposite of how most people perceive Jesus. It's an opportunity to stop worshiping all the gifts he gives and instead say, you know what the best gift is? Dying for lost sheep. That's the greatest gift. And we're going to fail at that. But look, keep looking at verse 6. Mercy is going to follow you too. Jesus knows you're going to still be tempted to go off that cliff. Jesus knows what you're capable of. It's a lot less than what you think. But he still gives you that job. He still gives you mercy. He wants you to go find some lost sheep too. So here's the thing. We can't break promises he made no matter how hard we try. We can't do that. You know, It gets even better than this. It's not just this life as in the future. Still in verse 6, you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These promises actually don't end. That's a picture of heaven. It's eternity with the good shepherd where there is no valley of the shadow of death. There's no death there. Where there's no need for a rod and a staff because the sheep don't want to leave. There's no enemies. no enemies, no darkness, no death, no pain, because Jesus is the light. So how can we then take hold of these promises right now? What do we do with this very poetic, very beautiful chapter of the Bible? Let's do some application. Let's talk about your head, what you believe. Let's talk about your heart, how you respond, how you feel. But let's talk about your work, your hands. First, let's talk about application to your head. And I'm going to go back to the whole do not want thing. Here's the belief change. Believe that the Lord is your shepherd. That's it. Believe that the Lord is your shepherd. That's what fundamentally needs to change here. You can take all the positive and negative feedback in the world, but if you don't believe that the Lord is your shepherd, it doesn't matter. Now, that sounds hard, but it's actually pretty simple. In other words, it's hard, but it's not complicated. It's like raising a child. It's really not that detailed and crazy. It's just incredibly, incredibly taxing on your brain, on your body. Here's what's going on. It means believing that you have a desperate need for him. So just check your beliefs. Do I operate in that way? Do I operate as though I have a desperate need for Jesus? And this is not mystical stuff. This is not vague, mystical stuff. It means pick up your Bible and read about how merciful and holy God is. Do you know the Bible? That's one way that you can grow in believing the Lord is your shepherd, is to know your Bible. If you don't, you probably don't know who God is. It means believing that his name's sake is what matters, because he's the shepherd and you're sheep. It means believing that his rod and staff are comforting. These are not hard if you know you're a sheep. None of this stuff is hard if you're a sheep. If you think you're not a sheep, it's really hard. So when you're tempted to puff up when someone gives you a compliment or you're tempted to deflate when somebody gives you a criticism or something hard happens to you and you just kind of collapse, here's what you do. You just pause and you say to yourself, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want." Repeat it. Repeat that in your mind. Believe it. Look in his words. See who he is. So how does that belief change, uh, change your heart? Let's talk about fear no evil. Here's your heart change. Sacrifice is actually going to become sweet. If that sounds disconnected to fear no evil, let me try to connect it for you. Because when sacrifice becomes sweet, you're not mentally... Clutching onto stuff, you're, you're actually kind of fearless. You can say, take whatever you want. Yeah, that doesn't affect me. For example, imagine a church where there were no jobs that nobody wanted. Just imagine a church where that's true. There's no jobs that nobody wanted. Imagine everybody saying instead, yeah, I'd love to help. How can I help? That's not a sign of a super church. That's the sign of a church. Now imagine that outside the church walls. Imagine the heart change. A desire for your enemies to know Jesus that is so passionate that it drives you to want to pray for them because they're lost sheep instead of just punching them. Can you imagine that? Because guess what? Imagine being so deeply in love with God that he can actually take away anything from you and yet you will not curse him. These are not signs of super Christians. These are signs of Christians. When I was a kid, I would see people and and they would be described as on fire for the Lord. You ever hear that one? It's not true. There are Christians and there are not Christians. They're not levels. Sure, you can be more mature. You know, the Lord is gracious and merciful and compassionate. He knows, that's why His mercy follows you. He knows that you're not going to be the guy who's like instantly like nothing affects you. It's a process. But please believe this. There are no levels. It's just this, are you believing or are you not believing on a daily basis? That's what it means to be shepherded. And if you believe that, slowly but surely your heart will change if you know Jesus is your shepherd. So then how does this heart change affect your hands or your work? I've got one way. There's probably a bunch but I'm going to tie it into the rod and the staff thing because I think that's pretty pertinent. The hands is you're going to joyfully seek out ways to grow. Please write this one down. You're going to joyfully seek out ways to grow. And I don't mean Google it. Although that is probably an okay application for stubborn people who don't like to ask for directions. Maybe you start there. Maybe it's that bad. You won't even consult a church engine for help. What I mean is that this, get ready, this is a regular question that you're going to ask people. Get ready for this one. Here's a question. How could I have done that better? Write that down. How could I have done that better? That's a regular question that you're asking people. And I don't just simply mean... How could I have, like, not screwed up? I mean, like, how could I have reflected Jesus more? How was I not in line with what God says is true? Even if it's something you consider yourself very good at. That's like the the masterful worship leader saying, hey, how could I have done that better? Or the, the long time pastor, or the short time pastor saying, how could I have done that better? Sound guy, how could I have done that better? Snack guy, how could I have done that better? Let's just inside the church. Let's go outside for a minute. Because you might actually get proactive with this. This is where it really starts to shine. Consider asking this question to your spouse. How could I represent Jesus more to you? How could I represent Jesus more to you? Have you ever asked that of your spouse? If you haven't, that's your homework. I'm serious don't come back without asking that ask it if you're married and you never asked that please do it today and you know what if you're burning if you're burning in your seat for the rest of the day waiting for your spouse to ask it you go first cuz you probably need to if you're burning in your seat for this one and this one is borderline crazy to the world this one killed me as a dad kids how can i be a better father Because nobody wants to apologize to their kids, right? It's like, I brought you and you know how much you cost and I, you know, every day and I don't sleep and I'm not apologizing to you. No. Kids, how can I be a better father? That's humility. Because what it says fundamentally is, I am not perfect. I need to grow. So you ask people, how can I represent Jesus more? Or your roommate? How can I be a better roommate to you? How can I represent Jesus more to you? If you ask people that question, they will not turn you down. Now, some of them, to be fair, are going to struggle so much with giving critiques that they're going to say, oh, you're okay. Push them. Push them. Start coming up with ideas. And if you don't, talk to your friends. They'll come up with some ideas if they're your friends. Ask them. I don't think people will turn down an opportunity to help. It's a great, great, great invitation. Because what it says is, I need a shepherd. And your friends will help point you to Jesus every time. Here's the point, guys. The Lord is your shepherd. It's the main point. That's your hope. And not just a shepherd, but a good shepherd. In fact, our shepherd was so good that he died... Like a sheep led to the slaughter so that we could not just be delivered out of death, but into a relationship with him that never ends. He didn't just die so that we could not die. He died so that we could live forever. So in other words, that's not just a picture of rescue. That's a picture of like marriage. That's a picture of an amazing relationship. And I say that as I close because we're actually going to be taking a little more of a pause from the book of Mark, and uh, starting next week, we're going to be doing a three-week series on marriage. That's what we're going to be doing starting next week. And the object is not going to be, how can my marriage be better? Because if that's all we hit, a bunch of you guys that aren't married are going to be like, I'm not coming. Though if you're married, I'm sure you're going to learn that too. Now, the object is going to be, how does marriage point us to the superior, never-ending love of Jesus Christ? That's the point. I look forward to that with you. Let's pray to our shepherd. Dear God, we are um, sheep that you have rescued. Lord, that doesn't cause us to fundamentally despair over everything. Lord, it should cause us to realize and remember on a daily basis that you are good you are our shepherd. That should cause us and drive us to do things like not want, to not covet the things that so easily intangible, rather lay them down. It should cause us to fear no evil and instead just love the sweetness of sacrifice. We can just give up these things. No matter how hard life gets, you can still be our treasure. And we can do things like believe, that you are our shepherd. And from that, our hearts can respond in praise, saying, you are good. How can we help? How can I serve? How can I grow? And from that, we're going to be people who are humble, and yet we are mighty because we serve a good shepherd who does not taste defeat. Lord, would you help us to grow more in your image? Amen.